The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum, welcome to Inspire FM. Uh, this is Friday Night Live, uh, and it's uh, Zafar Iqbal who's presenting today. Uh, and also co-presenting today is uh, Abdul Abu Bakr Kupar. Uh, I'm not sure this is Abdul there, but Abu Bakr Kupar at least. Anyway, inshallah. Assalamualaikum, Abu. Rest be in Abdul. Uh, okay. <laughs> Apologies for that. Ah, uh, a fluff to start off with. Uh, okay, so uh, we do have a, a packed show again for you uh, this week. Uh, if you enjoyed last week's show. Um, I promised to sort of do you a seamless ordeal this week, uh, although probably not the best because the best of the guys are probably that they are away, they're not here, so I'm covering. Uh, so bear with me. So we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about this story which uh, hit the local headlines, uh, which is about we love our Muslim neighbours, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, a little bit later. We got Turkish elections. Uh, we are actually fortunate to have some some high-powered uh, individuals who can talk about the the significance of the te- Turkish elections. We're going to have uh, Yusuf Irim, uh, from who's a Turkish uh, Turkey analyst of TRT World, uh, and we'll have somebody from the AKP, AKP party, the ruling party in, in Turkey as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about politics there. Uh, we're going to then talk about a very very sad incidents uh, of. Of knife crimes or knife crime, uh, which seems to be sort of on the rise. Uh, if you've been uh, reading the, the papers, you would have realized that um, over the weekend, over the last week at least, there's been five knife incidents in London. Uh, and I guess there has been local local sort of uh, incidents as well we'll, we'll talk about. And we'll talk, talk to the experts to see what's given rise to, to this increase in knife crime uh, and what uh, people are doing about it. Uh, and lastly, and I guess not leastly, uh, Brexit. Uh, how can we avoid Brexit? Um, we have to talk about it, uh, even though people are still less confused, as I am at least, and I'm confused about it, inshallah. Uh, so, but, but what we can do... If, 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 if you actually said to someone, oh, let's write a drama and call it Brexit, uh, what's gone on in the last three or four months? You really couldn't even script it, could you? Uh, it's true, it's true. And I'm sure there will be many a dramas to come, to be honest, yeah. Uh, post, <laughs> I mean, post. It, it, it looks fictitious. It's like watching a soap opera, really. It doesn't look real, does it? Yeah, well, actually, if they, if they produced a, a drama out of it, it might be actually real or might be better than the real thing. So maybe perhaps after the... Oh, it's, it's, it's more entertaining than watching uh, Coronation Street <laughs> or anything like that, that's for sure. Okay, but it is serious, uh, and we have some serious people uh, who are going to talk about it. So we have our regular uh, regular guest, uh, Dr. Stephen Barber from uh, University of Bedfordshire, even though I've still got Luton University on here, but University of Bedfordshire, he's going to be very upset about that. Uh, and we also have uh, Professor Catherine Bernard. Uh, she's a professor uh, of European Union Law at University of Cambridge. So we've got some very very qualified guests today uh to keep us going till eight o'clock so stay tuned if at any time you want to ring in uh, and take part in our discussions today our number as usual is 01582481822 we would welcome your participation by any means if you want to phone in uh, that's the number uh, and if you want to text or whatsapp in it's zero triple seven nine four eight one eight two two do join me and make it a conversation today uh hopefully it'll be interesting for all 
Uh, we're going to start off with a very, really, really positive story. So after the mm. uh, events uh, in New Zealand, uh, terrible events in, in New Zealand, uh, there have been many, many touching stories. I think people who have actually reached out and 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 shown us that uh, there is there is an alternative worldview, and there are people out there who are uh, of a different mindset, I guess, than than the person who's actually sort of displayed uh, such, uh, I guess, such a such a venom towards the Muslim community. So with me today, I have a special guest. Uh, his name is Andy Glidden. He's the curate of St. Hugh's Church, which is in Lucy Farm. Yeah, that's right. Great to be here. Thanks. Right. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you. you. For, thank it's good to be here. Thank you for driving all the way up here to join us in person. It wasn't too far. In, in <laughs> We're pretty close neighbours. Right. Okay. So perhaps uh, you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what happened. And I think you, you put a sign up outside of your church. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a, a quite a quite a small thing. Um, we um, it wasn't actually me. That's the okay. first thing to okay. say. All right. It wasn't actually well, me who started it, it all. And what and the person who started it all was my wife with my four year old son. Wow. That and is a- they were they were sitting down um, just just the day after um, the terror attacks in New Zealand. Zealand and mm-hmm. and and they were thinking well what can we do to express the way that we're feeling um, about this and um, and say something to the Muslim community who we thought just perhaps might be feeling um, if not afraid then just a little bit less safe mm-hmm. a little bit less secure a little bit less loved um, in in our community after after those things those horrible things that happened um, halfway around the world mm-hmm. and um, and and their expression was this they 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 just um, and they got out some paper um, and got out some scissors and they cut out a sign um, to stick up in one of our windows. Um, and it, it said, I heart or we heart our Muslim neighbours. Wow. And then had a little cross because because we're Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that to me seems like a tiny, tiny, almost kind of insignificant drop in the ocean in mm-hmm. comparison with what, what happened in New Zealand. I have mm-hmm. to say that is so nice. Four-year-old child. Yeah, that's, that like is that. so sweet and cool. It, it is. It is, and I, th- on I think every level. So uh, I, I think I think there's a lot of people who actually appreciated that. I gotta say, Eddie, you must have been so proud. I am. I am. I'm massively I mean, proud. See, seeing your little lad getting involved in that at four. But but the thing is, I, I I didn't really know what what you're expressing to me, and which um the kind of response we've had since has kind of blown us away, really, um, because. Um, the kind of the story goes on that um then kind of on the sunday mm. um it was it was sort of in the evening it was dark and um and kind of we had a knock on the door and, and on a sunday kind of I'm, I'm in church sort of in the morning and then and then kind of by the evening i'm, I'm kind of switched off you know i was in my pajamas I was, I was ready to go to bed um but there was a knock on the door and um i kind of thought for a moment like am i going to answer it and then but i did um and there were um, these two Muslim men there oh, okay. um, with their two small children. Um, and they said, um, we just, we, we felt like we had to come over and say something about your sign and how much it means to us. Hmm. And they didn't just say that. They brought with them um, pizza and, <laughs> and two pots of peri-peri chicken. <laughs> And their their small children had um, uh, had had written and like kind of drawn as a card, mm. um, and on the front of it, the the sort of front cover of it said, "We are all friends," and it had about twenty exclamation marks wow. on it. Um, and 
and it just kind of expressed. So you, had, so you ended up having a second dinner before you went to bed in your Right, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> we couldn't turn that down, could we? Yeah. And but it but it just astonished me, and and it astonished me further on that week, just getting stopped walking into my house. That the number of people who 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 looked over the fence and said, "You know what? That matters." Can I just yeah. stop you and say that that really matters? Mm. So. The story kind of went on, like jump in at any point that you want to. Um, but it was really exciting because because we in the church, and so I'm I'm kind of one of the leaders of a, of a local church. Um, we 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 realised from this that something was going on with this that it touched on something more than maybe m- way more than I had anticipated initially. Mm. So I told this story to a kind of couple of my colleagues, and they said, "Wow, we we want to." We want to express this. We feel this mm. same thing. We love our Muslim neighbours too. Mm. Like the heart, the Christian heart behind it is 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 that Jesus asks us to love our neighbours. Yes, yes. And that's and that's absolutely core to mm. to what it is to be a Christian. And so and so, yeah, our Muslim neighbours at this moment when 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 they need solidarity and they need our love and they need that expressed really explicitly, we want to do it. Mm. So what happened was um, was was uh, we just started telling the story to a few of them, and then everyone else wanted to get on board. And so and so we made a whole bunch of banners. Um, and they said basically the same thing. Uh, we love our Muslim neighbours. You're not alone. Um, and and there's one of those on almost every Christian church brilliant. in Luton brilliant. Oh, now. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Um, s- sort of somewhere between 20 and 30. Well. Um, and and a whole load of people just kind of got hold of this. And, and it was almost as if, for me and, and for my family, we just kind of saw it as this kind of snowball just sort of running down the hill. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we'd had this just sort of like little idea. Um, but it had caught so much more momentum and excitement than yeah. um, than we'd ever have imagined, yeah. um, and 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 it was just it was such a privilege mm. to 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 be part of that. But I still feel it doesn't begin to express the kind of um, the 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 sorrow we feel with with the Muslim community over that. And I know in Luton that has been. A really big thing, um, yeah. yeah. Given the history of Luton as well, indeed, indeed. And I think, I think to be honest, with you, it takes takes me back to, well, I think in the reverse situation after the incident, I think it happened in Manchester. And I think local masjid, local mosque here, invited the the church leaders, and and they, I think they they did an event outside the mosque as well. So I think there is that there is that desire, right, to actually reach out to other people and 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 to connect. Uh, but I think there is also the fear of the reaction as well, isn't it? To think, well, well what's the reaction going to be? Are people going to just laugh at us, mm. or are they going to? Uh, I think that that that's kind of. Uh, I can share something with you, nice sure. today as well. Um, at Charlie Boys today, uh, the, the the senior staffs, it, it just suddenly, I, I suppose, it, it occurred to them. They just realised that I, I'm just guessing that they overlooked to um, like have a remembrance silence. Mm. And um, the head teacher had obviously realised this, and um, um, and and rather and rather t- have that attitude. Oh, it, it was several days ago. Um, mm. He was he, he was proactive, and 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 uh, it was sent round uh, to all the teachers, and and was in a briefing. And I thought it was really nice. If you think, you know, the the, the boys that they've now broken up for Easter, mm-hmm. and of course they're going to remember this last day. Um, going off to holiday and um, Mr Connor really emphasised the importance of about um, feeling the pain 
uh, you know, and, mm. and he used the word of, of stealing and, you know, being strong with with our unity and, and, and in remembrance. So we had a silence today at, at, uh, in Charlie Boys in, in remembrance. Um, and I thought, you know, acknowledging that because some, some busy things have been going on at... Uh, at work you know there's been audits in in, in um, uh, science department and mm. other departments and, and i suppose with, with things um going on would have been easy to think oh uh, but i thought it was really nice the senior staff didn't do that they thought no we've got to remember this and, and i brilliant. think the boys i think the boys really really did very, very value and brilliant, treasure yeah, brilliant i think it just demonstrates um how i i guess it's important to um, not just just feel what you're feeling, but also somehow demonstrating on occasions like this. Uh, I think the immediate reaction is, is to sort of get your head down and say, "Well, okay, you know, this is really really bad, but you know, I don't want to be out of step with what, what others might be thinking." But it's that others might be thinking is where people get it wrong, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I think yeah, yeah. it just it just takes one incident or one person to say, "Well, I'm going to make a difference, or I'm going to do something," and then you see the. The rest of the people following, and then you see kind of like a, and that's been a case. I think in, in generally, I think um, the way the people of New Zealand and the leadership of New Zealand have actually sort of risen to, to this, and and I think I think it's almost uh, to the point where you remember the reaction rather than the action. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, I think that 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 could be true. That the, the people in New Zealand have have stood up and been yeah. strong in mm. the midst of it. It actually reminds me of um, there's a there's a there's a verse in the Christian scriptures that really actually means a lot to me, um, which is that perfect love casts mm. out all fear. Mm. Um, and in that, you kind of get this idea that the the perfect love, that when people kind of stand up in love and do something, that it pushes away fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder whether that was something of what was going on, um, kind of for us um, in in our response. That, like you said. Um, Everybody is worried about the reaction, mm, so maybe mm, they don't do something. Yeah. So they sit in a little bit of fear, um, and that, that we need actions of love, uh, expressions of love, um, to actually dispel that fear and actually bring us closer together. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, I just wanted to actually sort of broaden the discussion a little bit now that I've got you today, because I think we're sure I think tr- treat it more of a kind of like interaction between the communities, since this is a that's great. Yeah, the, the, the act has actually brought the communities, I guess, uh, closer. Uh, I wanted to broaden out and then perhaps talk about um, the the period of of the year that we're going to the Lent period. Yeah. All right. Now I, I know very little about it, right? And I think you're gonna you're going to sort of uh, see the my ignorance coming out. That's all right. That's uh, all right <laughs> already. But one thing I do know is is that the Lent is actually based on the lunar moon uh, lunar calendar. Is it or or not? Well, it is because. Um it's, it's, it's the reason why Easter moves around. Um, oh, we know that very well. Yeah. So Easter moves around, which which is confuses Christians as well, you know, and confuses schools because schools have to set their um, their, yeah. their term dates and things. Easter moves around. Yeah, it's based on the lunar calendar, um, and Lent is is the period leading up to Easter. So Lent also also moves around. It's already started. Um, it um, it starts. I mean, if you know where Pancake Day is, then you know when Lent starts because it's the day after Pancake Day, which right. is actually called Ash Wednesday. Right. Um, and in that in that time, in Ash Wednesday, um, at the beginning of Lent, um, often Christian churches will um, they'll take the um, these palm crosses mm. and they'll burn them. Um, the palm crosses are, are something that, which happens just before Easter. So they take the palm crosses from last year, burn them, and then in a service, they 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 mark um, our foreheads mm. with ash. 
Right. Okay. That's where it comes from. Yeah. And that's and that's to that's to remind us um, that um, that we've all sinned, that we've mm. all done things that um, that we're not proud of, mm. um, and that we need God um, to forgive us and to love us. And um, and so I did that. Um, I burnt ash ash. Uh, I burnt palm crosses in in my garden in the barbecue, um, out in the cold um, a few weeks ago. Um, and then we had a fantastic service where everyone came, mm. and it's very emotional. Mm, it's very, yes, yes, it's very yes. meaningful mm. to actually stand in a room and say, "Yeah, I'm not perfect. Mm, I, haven't, indeed, indeed. I haven't got everything going." So, so Easter is next week. So next week is the formal end of Lent, is it? Or so, um, yeah. So Easter's two weeks away, I think. Oh, sorry, two um, weeks away. That's right. Yeah. yeah two weeks Can I just ask you a question? Yeah, sure. It yeah. Comes up. Um, I, I was in. I was on holiday w- once in a room. Uh, it was a number of years ago, probably about eight years ago. And uh, we we were there, and um, oh, what was it called? I think it was called Palm Sunday. We we, we, right. ha- we happened to be there. Yep. What, what what does that signify? I've forgotten. So so Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. So That's Easter's right. always on a yeah, Sunday, yeah. Mm. and then the Sunday before is Palm Sunday, and that 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 signifies um, or we remember um, Jesus um, when he arrived into Jerusalem um, just a just around a week before he was crucified, um, and what happened then was that in contrast to him being executed, he was actually celebrated. Um, he kind of came in and um, to show his humility and show that he wasn't coming to be a big military king. He um, he rode in on a donkey uh, rather than like a war horse. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people all over the city, they, they picked up palm, palm branches off trees and they waved them um, and they said, Hosanna to the king of kings. And they celebrated him coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the one of the features of the of the Easter story is that is that is that by Friday the crowd has turned against mm, Jesus, mm, okay. um, and they and they bow for his blood. Yeah. So the the connection I was trying to make here is is that at Jewish Lent, you fast, right? And we fast in Ramadan. Right. And I think in, in yeah, may, that may, is may, may, yeah. maybe in a, yeah. maybe in a couple of years time I think there's there's gonna there's gonna be a kind of an overlap because I think the the Ramadan is moving back about ten days of oh, a year. Okay. Yeah. Ten days. It's about fifth of May at the moment, right? Maybe in uh, maybe next year or the year after. I think there'll be an over overlap between the two. Yep. So uh, so we do, yeah. And and obviously, um, when I when I speak to Muslims, um, I'm, mm. I'm I'm greatly impressed mm. by by the stringency of your fasting mm. um, in in Ramadan. Um, different Christian churches um, approach fasting during Lent um, differently. The mm-hmm. whole idea of pancake day is that you're supposed to kind of get rid of all the sweet stuff in your cupboards so that you don't have the sweet stuff mm-hmm. um, during Easter. But but not a lot of people keep to that um, these days. Um, our church, actually, St. Hugh's um, in Lucy Farm, uh, have been encouraging people to fast on Fridays. Right, okay. So just do Fridays as a fast mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of eat normally the rest of the week. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, actually, we fast all sorts of things. Um, We encourage people to fast food. Sometimes um, we actually say, well, you know, actually, if you fasted social media, Mm. if you fasted your phone, Mm. if you fasted some of these other things which grab your attention and and draw you in and kind of numb you to the reality of everything that's going on, maybe that would be more meaningful. Fast social media. Yeah, my 16-year-old daughter to fast from her phone. (laughs) I mean, I I, I would find that hard, but, yeah. But uh, I I think that that the point being that that I think fasting is is somewhat different, I think, in in, in your kind of uh, religious sort of spheres i think it varies i think i was speaking to somebody from a possibly from a from a catholic background and they were saying that uh the fasting our fasting one well, muslim fasting is from obviously from 
uh, before um, from dawn to dusk effectively mm-hmm. um, and we don't eat anything at all during mm-hmm. that period I think mm-hmm. from, from a Christian perspective it's, it's basically giving up something for a period of time yeah but but, but I think when I was speaking to uh, to this lady she was saying that uh, they fast but it's, it's a total fast I it could be up to five days nothing for five whole days no breaking at the end of the end of the day so there's that aspect of it as well. Or? Yeah, well, I've, yeah, I've known people who who have fasted for up to forty days. For, yes, absolutely indeed. nothing. Ab- nothing apart for from forty water. days. Right, yeah. Which you know that boggles my mind. I I I wish that that my discipline would stretch that far. Um, but um, and and you can imagine like kind of the weight loss potential for for, for something <laughs> like that. Um, but but but. I think that the the sense of giving something up, mm. something that something that matters, something that you will notice, mm. um, allows allows some of the meaning of Christian fasting to to kind of come up. Um, it, it all starts with um, Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He he, he fasted for forty days mm. um, without without food um, in in the wilderness area, the desert area, and he had a whole series of really powerful spiritual experiences in the midst of that, and that set him up for everything that he went and did. Mm. Um, and and so in the sense that Lent is a period of fasting, we do that as a period of, of preparation. Mm-hmm. It's a period, period to allow God to do things in us, which prepares us to then actually celebrate Easter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think similarly, I think we we have a fast, we have a feast after the fast as well. Yeah. So oh right, eat, yeah. Eat as well. Yeah, yeah they're the famous, aren't they? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that the, the ethos being, and I think this is common to many religions as well. The ethos being that that. Your spiritual self, right, uh, is is well. It's a demonstration of your spiritual self uh, power over the, I guess the, the cravings, I guess of of daily life, daily life. I guess it really isn't it. So, mm. I think there's a there's a bit of Actually, a. I really have to say, you know, this is such a positive thing, and you know, to the listeners out there, you know, think think about your if if you if you Christian people think about your Muslim neighbours, if you if you're Muslim people and and you know you've got Christian neighbours. You know, get to know each other. This is this is a positive thing, mm. because it is quite true. You know what Andy's been talking about and what you've been talking about, Zafa, is that it, the, the 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 badness happens out of uh, seeing seeing each other as different, and but not knowing the differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then seeing each other as different and becoming suspicious, and and this 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 is where. You know the, the 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 evil from shaitan, the devil creeps in, and then causes people to start having extremist thoughts and doing bad things. Mm. And if if we were reaching out to each other more, mm. so that all of our children were you know knowing each other and seeing each other all the time, yeah, have, have surely you, these have, these I, I, you know these bad things that we've seen, you know that we've seen them happen to Muslim people, of course. Recently, we, you know, there was the there was the terrible thing several years ago with the um, the soldier Lee Rigby, mm. you know, mm. the things we've seen. These things wouldn't happen if we knew each other better, because we wouldn't yeah. see each other as enemies. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's there's a lot of, and I think we mentioned not, that, not that we do, but the, what I'm saying is is that of course people do extreme things because they start to see each other as so different and as mm. enemies. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think knowing each other, there's a powerful sort of message in that. Uh, and I think that that's equally applicable, um, you know, within the communities as well. So within the communities, there are differences and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but and people simply say, "Oh, we're we're different because of," without really knowing, well, actually, what is that because of? Mm. And once you get to know and rationalize what the differences are, I we really, think, well, actually, there's not. 
Something it's, just it's, popped. Not, it's not a life-threatening mm. difference. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Something popped in my mind, actually, on what Andy said. Uh, um, about What was it you said about, uh, about love casting out fear? Yeah, perfect love casts out fear. S- something pops in my mind that uh, when, I worked, when I worked in a Muslim school uh, many years ago, and the imam I worked with, and he, sit, and, and, he, and he put it like this. He said, the absolute beginning of uh, prophethood for all of the prophets was love for the people. And it's because of their strong, strong love for the people, when the, if when they were fought by the people or not listened by the people or treated harshly by the people, they were patient, steadfast with their message, and eventually won the people over. Brilliant. And and that really reinforces what the whole uh, cooperation of Indeed. belief, whether you're Muslim or Christian, is all about. Indeed, indeed. Love. So, Tony, I think you've seen the seen the message over there. So, maybe perhaps you want to finish off with a, a final message. Well, uh, yeah, I would say that simply um, we love our Muslim neighbours, and um, we love you. And 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 I'm really pleased to be able to be um, invited here to be able to say that um, again. Um, I think that is something that um, it's really important that um, the Muslim community of Luton um, and Dunstable and, and all that area. Um, know that that is actually at the heart and um if and that's important that we see that it's also it's the leaders Mm. um of those churches but it's also um the other people so some of our some of our church members have been putting up these same signs we love our Muslim neighbors in their windows brilliant brilliant excellent message to finish off with listeners uh we're going to take a short break and after we come back we're going to talk about turkey i was going to say talk turkey but i'm not going to do that i'm going to talk about turkey you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. Uh, this is Friday Night Live uh, with me, Zafar Iqbal, and Abu Bakr Cooper. Uh, he's with us today uh, as a special co-presenter. Uh, to keep me, I guess, on my toes and keep me kind of like busy for the, the the rest of the couple of hours or so. So we're we're talking today. We were talking today before the break uh, about a local uh, local um, event, a local act of kindness, I would say, uh, when Andy Glidden and his family decided to show uh, what they felt about the Muslim neighbours. Uh, and what sort of response they got. They got a hugely positive response to their message, uh, including, I guess, from, from the wider church uh, community uh, and the Muslim community. Now, we're going to move on to a slightly different topic. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about the Turkish uh, elections, um, which took place uh, last week. Uh, we have on the line uh, today uh, to talk about that uh, Yusuf Erem, uh, he is a uh, Turkey analyst for TRT World, which is uh, uh, which you might know is, is a Turkish television uh, station. Um, and we're going to welcome him. I think he's on the line. Uh alaikum, Yusuf. Yes, I am. Uh, uh, welcome to uh, Inspire FM and Friday Night Live. Uh, thank you for having me. Right. Okay. So I, I'm just going to basically uh, mention the fact that local elections in the UK uh, tend not to be a, a kind of a massive affair. 
But according to the headlines from the BBC and the rest of the world uh, media, uh, local elections in, in Turkey appear to be a lot more significant than perhaps the UK local elections might be. So I wanted to, perhaps you to comment on that. Why why are they significant this time or are, are they significant normally? I think they're significant this time because of the result. Now, over the past 25 years, you've had uh, conservative mayors in both Istanbul, which is the social and economic capital of Turkey, and Ankara, which is the political capital of Turkey. Yeah. And in this most recent election result, at least unofficial results, though we can't call them official results, but they give us a good idea of what the official result will be. You have the major opposition candidates for, in both cities with the lead, ending a 25-year run for conservatives. Now, the governing AK Party was created in 2002, but the candidates from 1994 till 2002 also became AK Party members later. So we can trace back that type of political thought and political ideology all the way back, which would even predate the governing party. Mm-hmm. So this was significant because... Many people, especially in the West, viewed this as maybe a weakening of power for the governing party. Mm-hmm. But when we look at election results as a whole, being mm-hmm. at the governing party, UK party, got about 43% of the vote, and their coalition with the Nationalist Party got about 53% of the vote. So uh, if this was a general election, it would actually be a very good result. Mm-hmm. But the vote distribution was as such where... It benefited the major opposition in these two big cities. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this type of liberal movement in the big cities, which is not uncommon. We're seeing this in a lot of other countries as well. And a more conservative heartland, which uh, in Turkey is called Anatolia, a more conservative heartland right now. And this seems to be the trend with this election. And I believe April 13th, Hello? right now, there's a recount process. Hello? Uh, sorry, uh, I've got... Uh, um I've got uh, Abdul Rahim as well, who's from the AK party. I'm just going to come to you, Abdul Rahim, if you wouldn't mind. So uh, I've got Yusuf uh, Arim, who's from TRT World, uh, commenting on the elections and the significance of elections at the moment. Carry on, Yusuf. Mm-hmm. Yes, so uh, like I was saying, that uh, it's a significant result for the opposition, but when we look at this as a whole... Uh, this definitely does not mean that the governing party is losing any type of power. If this was a general election and not a local election, uh, it would have been a huge victory for the governing party. So we need to look at this in relation and uh, with a general perspective that, yes, it is a positive step for the opposition, but not a weakening of power for the governing party. Okay, so I, I do have a representative from the AKP party. Uh, I've got Abdul Rahim, uh, who is the chairman of the AKP party UK, uh, and he's the ex uh, ex member of the Turkish Parliament. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Abdul Rahim. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Inspire FM and uh, Friday Night Live. Uh, we were just talking about the significance of the elections. Because normally, I think the, the, the question I put to uh, Yusuf was normally local elections tend to be a mundane affair. Uh, in the UK, uh, but uh, in Turkey, they appear to have taken a uh, bit more of a significance. So uh, one of the th- things that has been been mentioned is the fact that the two major conurbations of uh, the two capital cities, I guess, um, the, the, the your party, the AKP party, doesn't appear to be uh, in the lead or have won. Uh, can that be confirmed at the moment or, or not? 
No, the result is not confirmed. Ankara, yes, Ankara CHP uh, has won, but uh, for Istanbul, the uh, official result is not delivered. So we are, as you know, recounting the votes again uh, with the uh, electoral committee, high electoral committee. Mm -hmm. uh, I think about three, four days. Uh, the official result is going to be delivered. Okay, but but it it show but it does show that on previous occasions uh, Istanbul was was won quite easily, but not this time. Is that is is that fair yeah, to say? About, yeah, of course. Twenty five years from now on, uh, since twenty five years, uh, Istanbul has been uh, governed by the AK Party. Hmm. Uh, even AK Party was two thousand two, but ninety four. Uh, elections, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has won the elections. Uh, of course, there's a big uh, significant differences. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as you know, we have now a new electoral, electoral system, okay. uh, which means two, two, three, four parties can both make a, a team by and then uh, get into the elections. So uh, I think that was all. It, it all that the uh, a victory for democracy. Turkey has free elections in uh, in a non-authoritative state country to opinion. Because uh, you know, for about ten years, uh, coverages using Turkey uh, is becoming uh, authoritarian demand. Uh, okay, so so uh, Abdurrahim, so, so I think your, your your line is breaking up a little bit. So so why why we'll try to correct that? I'm just going back to go back to uh, Yusuf. Yusuf, uh, I think you, you were saying, Hi, uh, Yusuf. Uh, Yusuf, can you can you hear me, Yusuf? Yes, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm just wondering if if you want to just carry on and uh, draw some conclusions in terms of uh, you know the. The, the two major cities perhaps not not being resoundly in the AKP. KP. I think you were making a comment to say that, that some of the liberal parties were perhaps making more gains. And maybe you could talk well, about the reasons why. Well, you have to realize that, that as we were saying, that the party has been in power in these cities, even predating their existence yes, yes. 25 years. So, uh, I mean, these political parties have to constantly renew themselves and revitalize themselves. Sometimes complacency does uh, slide in there. Mm. But uh, the CHP launched a good campaign. They were able to successfully actually reach out to conservative voters for the first time, mm -hmm. probably in their history. Mm. Uh, they're known as a very left-wing and secular party. Mm. And obviously, this doesn't usually reverberate well with uh, the conservative voters. But they changed their strategy up, and actually they ran a very Ak Party-like campaign this time around. Uh, even the name of the candidate in Istanbul, Imamoglu, the son of the Imam translating, mm -hmm. uh, was a was a kind of small type message. Their candidate in their candidate in Ankara, Mansur Yavaş, he's actually a former uh, member of the Nationalist Party (MHP), which is Ak Party's coalition candidate. So we saw the we saw this major opposition actually for the first time trying to reach out to these conservative voters because they are the majority right now and until they can tap into that voter base they were not successful for many years. So we're seeing the CHP abandon its normal strict doctrines and start taking a step towards the right wing, towards us party, and they're becoming a more central party. Now, how will this play going forward? That remains to be seen. Of course, there's a the 
very strict party doctrines. The elites inside the left-wing CHP are very uh, hard Kemalist. Kemalist meaning followers of the founder of Turkey, followers his ideology. Will they allow for this type of shift to continue? Or is this just a strategy, that, uh, a momentary strategy, until they can actually deal with the AK Party or at least compete with the AK Party? That remains to be seen as well. But one thing's for sure, President Erdogan in his speech after elections, the night of elections in Ankara, uh, he got the message. He definitely feels that there needs to be reforms. Mm-hmm. Now, after 50, after 15 elections in 17 years, the country has election fatigue. And yeah. now there's no elections for, for four and a half years till 2023. Mm-hmm. So President Erdogan signaled that he wants to use this opportunity to undertake much-needed economic reforms and the economy played a very important role. Even though this was a local election, uh, the economy was very, very important on anyone, everyone's mind as they were entering the voting booth. And that definitely with the recent sluggish economy, after a long period of high growth, low inflation, yes, the Turkish economy overheated. And it, economies are cyclical. It's going through a downturn right now. It overheated. And our party paid the price of all at the ballots, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but can can you? I, I guess these are local elections, and I know I know in the western capitals, and I think that the western capitals tend not to to favour uh, Erdogan uh, and and his sort of leadership style, etc. So I think it may is it the case that perhaps the western sort of uh, uh, analysts are putting too much emphasis on on these elections and the fact that there might be a, an underground change but it's not that much of a, a significant change i think the western analysts are putting way too much emphasis on local elections yes, okay indeed. Uh, right now unofficial results show the opposition leading in istanbul and ankara but like I said, if you look at the results, the AK Party is still the number one party in elections, mm. 15 elections in a row. I think this result actually is very healthy for the country, and it shows that this kind of, that democracy is in this country's DNA. Uh, you look at the narratives a couple months ago, and everyone's talking about how Turkey's autocratic or descending into autocracy, but look at these election results. Mm. The major opposition is leading. They've made some gains. And there's, uh, there's going to be a very good and peaceful transition of power. I mean, Turkey is much better off than the Western media makes it out. Look, and they, they do need to give Turkey that credit. When you look in relation to Turkey's neighborhood, it, it, is, a, it is a pillar of democratic order compared to any other country that it's a neighbor with. Yeah, I, I know if you, if you read some, some newspapers uh, in the West, they, they do try to sort of... Uh, to, you know, class uh, Erdogan in his party as being the neo-Ottomanism. There's a label that's come out there, and I think that's more, mm-hmm. more trying to label it as more autocratic. Uh, but what you're suggesting is that, uh, you know, that image is perhaps not necessarily uh, borne out of these results, at least anyway. I think the problem with uh, Western media is they try to reduce all their logic and reasoning inside Turkey when they're analyzing Turkey to Erdogan. Uh, I've seen some people talk about, well, if uh, I've seen some people say that Erdogan's going to try to steal the local election if Imamola doesn't uh, become mayor. If he does become mayor, well, he allowed him to become mayor. Well, if he becomes a draw, well, he willed it to become a draw. Well, he doesn't control everything in this country. This is, this is a democratic country. There's voters, there's institutions, there's an electoral committee reviewing all results. 
an electoral committee that's made of one government employee and a representative from each political party. And this is very important. And I also want to touch on one more thing, hopefully if we have time. I want to touch on what happened in the southeast of Turkey. I think this is very important. Sure. This is a uh, Kurdish-majority region in the southeast. Yes. And the HCP, the, pro, uh, the pro-Kurdish party, uh, a party that, just, that many say has links to the PKK, mm-hmm. uh, lost many major cities, cities that they considered their stronghold. Mm-hmm. Cities like Shirnak and Ada and Bitlis. They also a very interesting story. They lost the city of Tunjeli. They lost the city of Tunjeli to the Turkish Communist Party. Wow. Now, the Turkish Communist Party is a 26-year-old party. This mm-hmm. is the first time in their history they have ever won a seat, whether it be in federal or local government. And I think this is a very important, this very important note from election night. Uh, they, they are now the sixth party in Turkey to have a seat, whether it be generally or locally. There's five parties represented in Parliament. They've become the sixth party now with a seat in the local governance. So you have a wide variety of the political spectrum being represented here. Right? Who would think that the Turkish Communist Party would have a seat in power right now? I mean, I think this is very important to note. And it's also very important to note that while the narrative in the United States, uh, especially in northeast Syria, an area right now that the uh, U.S. coalition partner, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are mainly made up of a group called the YPG, yeah. uh, the Syrian arm of the PKK terror organization. Now, many Americans are worried that if Turkey launches an operation in this area, they're going to slaughter the Kurds, quote-unquote, as Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, said. But you see in these local elections that Kurds are now shifting their vote to Erdogan. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is definitely noteworthy, very, very important. Mm-hmm. So... This will definitely empower President Erdogan in his negotiations with the Americans going forward on the state of the Northeast as America thinks about withdrawing from Syria or keeping a residual force there. This is very important because this is local elections actually impacting foreign policy. So, yes, it was an important election. So, indeed, I think what you're saying is... is, uh, So, I just wanted to explore a little bit more about the some of the reasons why... Uh, perhaps the, the Western nations have this this attitude, and I think it may be more to do with geopolitics of the region. In in particular, uh, I think the the situation in Syria and the fact that there was, I guess, a bit of a falling out between between NATO and and Turkey. Well, the situation in Syria is one. Obviously, the Turkey is not happy with America's coalition partner there. Uh, they weren't happy in 2014 when Obama made the decision. They're not happy in 2019 when Trump decided to continue this decision. Uh, they view their co- they view the United States coalition partner as a terror group. Uh, another bone of contention between the countries is the S-400 deal. It's been in the papers a lot right now. Yes, uh, Turkey's trying to buy a Russian a Russian missile defense system called the S-400. Mm-hmm. The reason why they decided to buy this is because America didn't sell them the Patriots for many many years. Mm-hmm. Turkey needs a missile defense system, and the S-400 was a viable alternative. Mm-hmm. Now, the United States is saying, if you buy this Russian missile defense system, we're going to kick you out of the F-35 program. Mm-hmm. Now, Turkey has been in the F-35 program basically since the inception of the program. They're not only a customer buying 100 units, which equals four squadrons, they're also a manufacturer and a partner in the program. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important program. Turkey made its military planning around buying this plane. Mm-hmm. Now, America says, if you buy these S-400 from Russia, you may be jeopardizing the stealth technology. So both of these countries are now sitting together trying to find a way around this 
uh, around this problem. Mm-hmm. And President Erdogan is going to meeting with, be meeting with Vladimir Putin on the 8th of this month. So I'm sure that's going to be high on their list of priorities that they're going to be debating amongst each other. Uh, that remains to be seen. But th- there's also many other topics, many other bones of contention as well. Uh, in Pennsylvania right now, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, there's a Turkish cleric residing there on asylum. Oh, that's and right, many yes. Turks feel that many Turks feel that he's the alleged mastermind of the July uh, July 15, 2016 coup. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Petrovac Gilad, and he runs an organization uh, organization called Hizmet. In Turkey, they call him FETO. Uh, the, they call the organization FETO for the Petrovac Terrorist Organization. Mm-hmm. Now, this group, uh, there's very strong evidence linking this group to the coup. A coup that uh, ended up uh, ended up killing 250 people. So, I mean, these are a lot of there's a lot of problems right now in between the United States and Turkey, and each one of these problems are very important and complicated issues. And I, and I guess the the fact that the the Americans are supporting a Syrian group, the YPG, uh, uh, sorry, the Kurdish uh, group in in Syria, uh, and the fact that that Turkey has declared that as being a terrorist group, it doesn't help. Um, no, well, the, the, we need to remember that the YPG is the Syrian arm of the PKK. Yeah. The funny thing is, America recognizes and has designated the PKK as a terror group. Mm. But across the border in Syria, across the border in Syria, it's their coalition partners. Mm. Mm. Now, that doesn't add up. Uh, I just saw an article in the, the New Yorker. They did this very nice little pub piece on Mazlum Kobani, the leader of the, the YPG. Mm-hmm. He also happens to be the godson of the founder of the PKK. He's right. a former senior commander. But in the American media, unfortunately, he's getting an incredible amount of love in PR. And yes, when Turks read these articles and they see the way he's treated, it, it makes them scratch their head to say, what is our NATO ally doing on the other side of the Atlantic? Why? And, and yes, and, and I guess this is perhaps where, where is Israel and Israeli relationship with the Kurds comes into it. It almost, it almost, it, well, it almost I mean, seems like it almost seems like Turkey is being, well, not being able to buy the Patriot defense system, and uh, its its honor, as it were, not being respected in NATO. It almost it seems like they're being pushed into Putin's arms somehow, doesn't it? I definitely feel like they're being pushed into Putin's arms. I mean, a lot of people are talking about Turkey shifting east. I don't think they're shifting east. I think they're being pushed east. Mm. Um, but the, sh- surely look- this is... Surely, I, I mean, in the region, I mean, let's face it, Turkey Turkey is the jewel in the crown of, 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 the, of the Muslim region there. It's, it, it, it is and has always been the bridge between east and west. And... W- it being an ally in NATO, surely it's got to be folly for uh, a, a, a America to jeopardize, jeopardize the relationship with Turkey. I, I, I'm completely lost at the actions here. It just doesn't make sense to uh, well, me. You have, you have to realize, you have to realize Turkey's NATO's second biggest yeah. army. It's the second biggest army. Uh, it's NATO's southern flank. I mean, Turkey, Turkey is the country that keeps the extremist boogeyman out of Europe. Yeah, Turkey's the one that fights it. Turkey's the front line against terrorism. Mm. And to push a country like this away, to push a country that deals with Al-Qaeda, deals with Daesh, deals with the PKK, deals with the HTS, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, 
and keeps these people out. Is housing 3.5 million Syrian refugees and another 500,000 Iraq and Afghani refugees. These refugees would be in Europe if Turkey didn't house them. Uh, Turkey's doing all this to improve Europe's security and NATO's security, but yet it, it's, it's being, it, when it comes to relations, it's being treated like a stepchild. Indeed, indeed. So I, I think I was, I was going to make a comment about uh, the Israeli relationship with, with the Kurds and, and Turkey, and whether that's a factor in the region, in the sort of geopolitical factor in, in trying to sort of, I guess, uh, portray the, the current sort of um, leadership in Turkey in, in that particular way? Well, it's, it's no secret that Turkey and Israeli relations have deteriorated over the last decade. But when we look at the deterioration between Israel and Turkey, it's not really anything to do directly with the foreign policy of either country with each other. They, have actually, they actually have a lot of converging national interests. Mm. The problem is mainly the Palestinian issue. Mm-hmm. And the Palestinian issue is actually an Israeli domestic issue, but this is ter- something Turkey is not standing for. They want the two-state solution that was agreed upon in the United Nations in- Applied. The, they're not happy with the way Netanyahu is dealing with the Palestine issue, mm. and this is the main bone of contention between both countries. But but is, is, isn't the, the relationship with the relationship with the the Kurds between between the Kurds and Israel also is a bone of contention? I think the relationship between the Kurds and Israel has something that has cult, been cultivated more and more recently right. as a as a kind of backlash or reaction the deterioration in Israeli-Turkish relationship. I think if Israel and Turkey could actually get on board together, or maybe a rapprochement, uh, I, I don't think that would be a huge problem. I think Israel would definitely rather have Turkey as an ally than have a non-state actor as an ally. Uh, you look at Turkey with a population of 81 million, one of the biggest economies in the Middle East, a very dynamic country, dynamic military, mm. stable uh, obviously, Israel would much rather side with Turkey if it had the opportunity to. But the problem is, as I said, uh, Palestine is a problem. But we have to wait Israeli elections. There's Israeli elections uh, April 9th. Mm. Some, some interesting things can happen. We could see a new administration come in. A new administration could be hope for a new white page in uh, uh, Israeli-Turkey relations. So who knows what the future brings? That's something that will definitely have to be followed very closely. Also, uh, another bone of contention between Turkey and Israel is the vast amounts of oil and gas found in the eastern Mediterranean. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of riches right now, Correct. and this is an issue that's going to become more and more important going forward. And you're going to hear about this more and more in the media as it heats up, because it's an issue that involves Turkey, Israel, Greece, Cyprus, Lebanon. So there's a lot of countries with converging and diverging national interests in that area, and also e- Egypt as well. Egypt's a very important player in that issue as well. Uh, and that has a that could turn into a very pot- potentially explosive issue coming up in this year, maybe next year. Indeed. So that's something that everyone should closely follow as well. Indeed, Yusuf. Uh, I want to have to thank you for your contribution. I've run out of time now. Uh, thank you for your thank uh, fantastic you, analysis, you. I would say, of the, the elections and and the the actual sort of view of the, the wider Western community towards Turkey. Uh, brilliant sort of uh, analysis, I would say. Thank you. And perhaps we'll uh, talk again at uh, another occasion. Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure was all mine. All right. Right, listeners, I'm going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back, inshallah, and we'll talk about another very hot topic. 
knife crime. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz and you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast. Assalamu alaikum, uh, welcome to uh, Friday Night Live. Uh, this is Inspire FM and me, uh, Safar Iqbal, and also we've got Abu Bakr Cooper with me today, inshallah. Uh, before the break, we were talking about Turkish elections, local elections, but uh, they appear to have uh, more of a significance uh, because the ruling party uh, appears to have lost some ground. Uh, so we had some fantastic analysis from, from Yusuf Erim. Uh, he's a Turkey analyst at TRT World. Uh, we also had uh, Abdul Rahim, uh, who's the chairman of the AKP Party UK. Uh, I have to apologize to him uh, because his line was not very clear and, and it dropped. Uh, we did try to get hold of, uh, of him again, but he was not available. So maybe there were some telephone, telephone issues. Um, okay, we're going to move on to the next topic. Um, and this is a, a, a topic which I actually sort of is quite... Um, quite important i guess uh in many ways and uh, i guess if, you, if you've been watching uh 24 hours in police custody custody uh, you would have seen a video uh, and i happened to see that video actually uh in in the sun which was circulated uh in on whatsapp and i have to admit it made me it made me weep to be honest it made me cry uh seeing a young uh, young azan uh, kaleem uh within a matter of seconds, brutally murdered uh, for no reason other than perhaps, uh, you know, giving a, a bad look to somebody or or giving some sort of an indication uh, uh, like that. Uh, and it just, to me, it highlighted the dangers and risks uh, of knife crime. Uh, and, uh, and I guess if you've been watching and listening to the news, um, over the weekend, you would have you would have heard that that there has been a series of these senseless knife crimes throughout London. Uh, people who have been just stabbed in the back uh, while walking in the streets. Uh, it makes you just wonder what what on earth is going on. So we're going to talk to a couple of activists today. Uh, we're going to talk to Halima Ali, uh, and she's from an organisation called Twenty Two Seconds to Murder. Uh, and we're also going to talk to uh, Sheldon Thomas, uh, he runs Gangs Line, a consultant on violent crime. Uh, we're going to try and uh, try to analyse basically why there is a rise in crimes like that and why apparently there is such a, a lack or such a disregard for life um, as it would appear. Uh, I'm going to welcome Halima Ali uh, and Sheldon at the same time. So Halima, first of all, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Inspire FM. Thank you. Uh, and can I welcome Sheldon Thomas as well? Uh, hello, Sheldon. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I think you've been on Inspire FM before, so welcome again. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. So I want to start off by perhaps if you can, Alima, if you can comment on um, the the local murder. I guess mm. this is. I guess it's more. Uh, I guess more sort of relevant to the local listenership. Um, uh, first of all, I guess, you know, when you heard about it and what you decided to do about it, really? Yeah, so uh, this boy, his name was Azan Kalim, um, mm. and he was an 18-year-old boy from Luton. He sadly was stabbed to death, uh, and in broad daylight as well. Yes. Um, and, you know, this kind of senseless act of violence, I wanted to know what, you know, what caused this, mm -hmm. why was this happening in our town? 
Um, so I thought, you know, I really wanted to do something at the time to help raise awareness about this issue and find out what, what was going on with our young people. Um, I then, you know, wanted to approach the mother. Um, I was told by the police, you know, I, I need to kind of uh, contact the victim's families to actually do, if I wanted to do, do an event. Mm. And then, um, but they couldn't give her information, you know, due to confidentiality and so mm. on. And one day I was just doing an event on human rights, an art exhibition, and then somebody came into the room and said, you know, can you do an event on knife crime? And I looked at her and I said, you know, th that is my next plan, but I need to get in touch with the victim's families. And she looked at me and said, I'm, I'm Azan Kaleem's mother. Oh. And I thought, subhanAllah, that was just amazing to, you know, just be put in touch with the person I've been trying to find. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. then when she told me about the attack that took place, um, there was actually a CCTV recording, as you mentioned, uh, which was aired on 24 hours in police custody. Mm -hmm. um, and that attack happened over the space of 22 seconds. Mm -hmm. And we just thought it was such a strong, impactful statement to say 22 seconds to murder. Um, that, you know, somebody's life can be lost in such a short space of time. So mm. that's why we decided to do an event on it. Mm. Um, I did this as an artistic event mm. um, in the hope that it can reach young people and their families. Um, so we had artwork done by artists from across. It wasn't just in Luton. We had artists from London. We had then spoken word artists and rappers. Even somebody from Wellingborough came down to mm. Luton. Mm -hmm. You just people going out of Luton. So it was good to have artists uh, and talent coming in here. Um, we had a panel discussion. Um, we had Razan, the mother of um, Azan Kaleem, come and speak as well. Um, and then we actually ended it by having a martial arts demonstration mm -hmm. um, and also a discussion on anger management and conflict resolu resolution. Because mm -hmm. we re realised like, a lot of the young people are carrying because, you know, they, some of them are, aren't actually in gangs. Mm -hmm. You know, they're carrying because of protection. Mm -hmm. You know, they feel that need to protect themselves. Um, mm -hmm. They feel that need, you know, they want to be safe. So we thought if we can provide them the skills of, you know, martial arts mm -hmm. or how to defuse a situation, you know, like that situation with Azan happened over a dirty look. Mm -hmm. um, how can you defuse those kind of situations before it can escalate into something further? Mm -hmm. So that's where that came about. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that a bit later on in terms of uh, what what um, you hope to achieve in the, what, what actually you, you, how you're going to progress from where you are. Uh, I want to bring in Sheldon here uh, a little bit. So... Uh, Sheldon, I think the, the very question that Halima raised is that young people are feeling uh, unsafe. How can that be? Well, it's um, quite simple. reason why most of the kids involved in this lifestyle that we have found through Gangs Lines work across the country when we engage gang members, most of them don't have father figures. Mm. And when you don't have father figures, it's going to be, it's a well-known fact Mm. that there's a certain thing going to be missing in your life, even though as a child you don't recognize it. Sure. While you're going through hormone changes, when you're moving from that age group of 10, 11 into the teens area of you know, 13, 14, mm. there are serious changes that happen in the body of young people. Mm. Um, everyone, doesn't matter what color you are, everyone goes through these changes. Yeah. And if you do not have that wraparound um, help in your family when you haven't got a father figure, mm. it is actually being proven that you will grow up emotionally detached Mm -hmm. And you're more likely to get involved in gangs. There's been free research done um, mm -hmm. by three professors, um, two in America, one in the UK, where they've all agreed that when you have no father figure or you grow up in an environment of violence or you grow up in an environment of domestic violence, mm -hmm. um, that you're more likely um, to fall into that negative peer group. So that's one. The other one, I totally agree with your, um, your presenter there. Um, she's p 
perfectly right when she talks about the fear. There is a fear amongst young people um, mm. of gang members. So many of them who are not in gangs tend to take weapons to defend themselves. That is definitely 100% the truth. That's wow. why I've always said we cannot stop knife crime or gun violence until we fix the problem at home. Because mm. the problem at home is the problem here. Because mm. you have to understand, there's a, the government are very quick to say, oh, the reason why young people are killing each other is because they grow up in a deprived area. Mm -hmm. Well, I cannot tell you the facts here. There were a lot of families who grew up in deprived areas, and they're not criminals. Yes. So that argument is not true. Yeah, the argument should be based on family cohesion. If you have no family cohesion, in other words, you don't have both parents giving you that emotional love, mm -hmm. it has been proven with the attachment theory and mm -hmm. Maslow's hierarchy of needs that you are going to grow up in a negative, emotionally um, impaired, you will be um, emotionally detached, you will have lack of emotional growth, mm -hmm. you will have no empathy, you'll have no compassion. These are things that make the human being compassion and empathy mm. when you have when you don't have that mm -hmm. that is where violence comes from so we're arguing we're tackling it completely wrong we think let's do intervention let's run a knife crime mm. um knife knife program that's not going to help this what we need in this country is a societal change. Mm. So what I'm you're saying, saying is, Sheldon, it, it, that you're, you're, you're saying the research is showing that the, the child is not is not being exposed to and seeing a structured, uh, loving example from two parents. Yes, I'm saying when you don't get love, yeah. children who are going through hormone changes from the age of from the young age into that teen yeah. age. They just learn how problem. to be angry. It's a problem already. Yeah. And what we don't understand is we're trying to tackle a problem which is a biological family problem based on emotions that we're lacking in. Mm. And if you mm. lack in emotions, committing violence, you will be desensitized to it. Mm. And so what we've got to ask ourselves is... We have got lots of poor families in this country who never commit crimes. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is what we do at Gangs Line. We do a comparison. We say, why is it that there are families who are in the same poverty as this family, but they don't commit crimes? Mm -hmm. When you look at why they don't, it's in one family, there's more family love. There's more family cohesion. There's more togetherness. There's more joy. When you look at the other family that is committing crimes, you will notice that there isn't that family cohesion, that family love. Mm. So, for instance, let me give you an example. One of the reasons why in um, Bradford, up, up north, why there's a lot of Pakistani gang members, yeah. many people won't know this, but I, as a black man, have gone to Bradford and engage with those gang members. Many people haven't. Mm. When I listen to what they said to me, this is what those gang members told me. Mm -hmm. Now, these gang members, they deal in error in. That's yeah. what they do, yeah. right? And you know what they said to me? They yeah. said, listen, the reason why we're in this is because my dad is a hypocrite. Mm. This is what he said. He said, um, most of the gang members I met up in Bradford, their dads were going to the mosque and then drinking alcohol at mm. night. Mm. So he was saying to me, listen, I'm not following these brothers. I'm not following my old man going to the mosque. He's a hypocrite. So 
So he followed his friend who was a drug dealer. Mm. So what I'm saying is mm. we, we as parents have got to take responsibility for the actions of our children. I, I, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess, Sheldon. The the argument would be that that um, the the family breakdown. I think this is what you're getting at. The family breakdown happens in all sections of society, even the the upper tier of society where where yeah. there is they are well off. But you don't see, or do you see, a similar sort of pattern in, in those type of yeah, families? Yeah, we do. In middle class <clears throat> families at mm. the moment, we're, we're Gangsline's doing another piece of research around middle class white families, mm. and you see the same things there. Why? Because mm. when you have both parents who are successful, sure. what do you think that means? It's mm. simple. They don't spend any time with their kids. Mm. If okay. you're successful running a business and you're, what, you're, 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 the, the mother of the kids is also maybe successful in her job, mm -hmm. that means you won't spend the time yeah. necessary to give your child that emotional growth and love. Mm -hmm. So that means even in middle-class houses, we are seeing white middle-class children involved in gangs sure. because they are not getting that love at home so they're looking for love elsewhere just like yeah. black kids and they're looking for kids. a place to belong and feel exactly mm. yeah. so okay Connected, so, so that, that yeah. there's, there's a structural thing that needs to happen to make the youngsters feel secure at home uh so they don't need that they'll have the desire to be part of a, an external sort of uh uh, a family unit, effectively, that's what you're saying. But uh, I, I guess that that would be a long-term solution, uh, and that would be kind of like dealing with the, the causes. Uh, but it's a it's a one one I would say perhaps is a losing battle because society is it's heading towards breakdown. It's not. It's not. And I tell you why it's <clears> not a losing battle. We want quick answers to a problem that's been a long-term problem. Yes. You can't. You cannot fix a problem that's been with us for 30 years and sure. you want to fix it because we've had 100 murders in the last year. You can't do that. We've got to change the way we think. We are not going to fix knife crime overnight and we need to stop thinking about that. What we should be doing mm -hmm. is addressing the long-term problem now, mm -hmm. looking at family cohesion. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim mm -hmm. or whether you're a Christian or whether you're white or whether you're black. It don't matter. What matters is what is family within what you, where you are from. So mm -hmm. if you're a Muslim mm -hmm. and you know that going to the mosque is important, mm. then you have to question why those people are drinking alcohol. Mm. You have to. Yeah. And if you don't question it, then all you're doing is pushing the younger generation of Asian Muslims away because they're going to say you're an hypocrite. So you have to address that. So in the Christian household, we've got to address hypocrisy. Mm. In the middle-class household, we've got to address that. So if we don't start addressing these things fundamentally, mm. you're not going to fix knife crime. Sure. I, I mean, no, dis no disrespect to um, your, your, the, the lady caught the, the lady that's in the studio. Sorry, what is her name? Uh, uh, Halima. 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 Yeah. No disrespect to Halima, but a conference is not going to make a difference. Mm. I've been there, done that. Mm. I've been. We've been involved in conferences before Halima was even born. Mm. And it doesn't make a difference because conferences just bring people together and they all act emotional and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't solve anything. The truth of the matter is in the Asian community, in the black community, in the poor white community, we don't want to address the problem. Mm. What we want to do is do what Alima is doing, which is holding a conference and thinking it may make a difference. It won't. But I'm not here to, do, I'm not here to, to, to put a, 
her what she's doing down. I'm not here to do that. The reason why I'm telling her this, I'm speaking from experience. Mm. I'm not trying to tell her not to do it. So I don't want Alima to walk out the studio to think I'm telling her not to do it. I'm saying that because Alima has not been around as long as I have, mm. and most people haven't, like your radio station has been around as long as me. I've been around since the 60s. Right, but okay. I know what I'm talking about. And sure. I'm saying to you now that the reason why we're in this mess is because of ourselves. Right. Nothing to do with poverty. Mm. Nothing to do with that, oh, we live in a block of flats. It's because we, as parents, do not want to do the right thing by our children. So when, when what we do is, this is what you call a, a gap in the market. Mm. So what's happened is gang members have found a gap, or terrorists have found a gap in our families. Mm. You know what that mm. gap is? We don't love our children. Mm. Okay. That's what the gap is. Can I just, so, can I just add yeah, something again? Um, so thank you for your views. Um, firstly, I would say it's not, it wasn't just a conference that I did. Um, I know that conferences don't work. Um, if, you know, if you're just talking down to a group of young people, that's not going to work. So that's why I did this as a holistic event. And I did it coming from a creative, artistic angle. So we had the artwork being created. We had, you know, a young uh, kid, 15-year-old kid from Luton. He did a knife crime rap um, and then we had the martial arts stuff and so on. So mm. it was, you know, it was a holistic event. But yeah. well, so, so I, I think that I think what, what Halima's, I guess, to summarise what she's saying is, is that uh, yes, you need to tackle the root cause, uh, but but also there is there is room, I guess, and there is scope to deal with the the problem, the, the, the I guess the the symptoms of the problems as well. I would also say about the poverty. I, I disagree with what you're saying there. So I do agree with that. You know, there isn't a racial um, angle to this. Um, and there is family breakdown and, you know, we do need to address that. Mm -hmm. But coming from a young person myself, like I'm 25, as you say, you know, you've been around much longer than I have. But coming from a young person's point of view, I would say poverty is one of the key thing, key factors in this. And, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a governmental problem, a political problem, a poverty problem. You know, if we're having young people who have had a breakdown of, you know, cutting down youth services, you know, lack of services and so on, those kids are going to end up on the streets and then they're going to find their friends or their family, the new fan families, on the streets. Mm -hmm. So personally, I used to work in a people refer unit. Um, so this is where what we call behaviour schools. So when kids essentially get kicked out of mainstream school and in that environment, you see, you know, the kids have either been abused or they've had, mm -hmm. you know, really, really tough upbringing. So it might be a lot of them don't have a father figure in their life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why they end up hating all kinds of authority. Mm -hmm. Then they end up seeing, you know, problems mm -hmm. with the police and so on. Um, some of them have parents who've been in prison and, and, you know, there's a lot of issues that you have to tackle. And mm -hmm. it's us as, you know, youth workers and so on having to approach this problem, build up that trust with them and let them know that they can trust an adult, they can trust an authority figure. And that's how you bring them back into education and back into, mm -hmm. you know, some kind of normality and away from that gang life. Mm -hmm. um, but also when it comes to like the police, for example, personally, I do work. So I, I guess you could say kind of against um the corruption of the police, I guess. Um, I'm uh, the vice chair of the Bedfordshire Police Scrutiny Panel. Mm. So I know there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of criticism around stop and searches. But what this panel does is ensure that stop and searches are conducted in a fair and efficient manner. Mm. Um, so we actually get to review those stop and search uh, sure. searches that take place. So, you know, it's lots of different angles. There's no just, mm. there's no one quick fix solution. It is something that would take a long time. Mm. But we can look at places like Scotland in Glasgow, there's something called the VI, uh, VIU, I think, v Violence Reduction Unit. Mm. So that's, you know, they're working with prisons 
Uh, they're working in, in like the rehabilitation. Um, so, you know, one of the key issues that we've got in the UK is when people go to prison, um, they tend to reoffend. There's mm. not, you know, that rehabilitation that, you know, we need with the prison inmates. Mm. So, you know, looking at it in that angle or mentoring, a lot young boys need mentors. They need good role models. If they're not going to have a good role model, they're going to look to the person on the street who's given them 100 quid for the trainers. Mm. You know, if they're not, you know, if there's if they have poverty at home in, in that school I used to teach, we used to have kids who used to come in the exact same outfit every single day. And we would know when they had a different outfit on after they started what they called trap trapping. So they used to, you know, start dealing drugs. For them, it was, you know, they've, they've got someone who's given them 100 quid. For that, them, it was a lot of money. Mm. They don't realise the people at the top would be earning millions. And, you know, the people at the bottom are hardly seeing anyone. They're being used, you know, manipulated. For them, though, it's it, they've got a new family who's provided them with a new pair of shoes. Mm. So. Okay. So, Sh- Sheldon, if I, if I could come to you. So, so I think you, you, you call, you've talked about the causes of disaffection. Uh, disaffection, which may perhaps... Uh, you know, lead to, to disrespect of, of father fatherhood figures, etc. But there's also the draw as well, isn't it? There's also the attraction, and the attraction from, I said, uh, criminal gangs uh, related to drugs, etc. The, the attraction is there, but I, this is why I disagree with that poverty, okay? Because mm. everybody uses this word, and I find it's always a lot of young people mm. using the same thing because... They've grown up in this environment, and if it are, it's, they hear other people talk about it. But let me tell you from somebody that's lived in poverty. I have five brothers. They're all black, okay? Mm. They're from Jamaica. Mm. In Jamaica, my brother used to wake up every day to gunshots, every mm. single day. Mm-hmm. Every day to gunshots. He'd come to England, mm-hmm. right? And he never became a gang member. The only one that became a gang member in my family was me. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I know why I became a gang member. I had no love in my house. Mm. Let me tell you why I know I disagree with poverty. Mm-hmm. There are thousands of family, completely outnumber gangs in this country that live in object poverty. Correct. That's that right. That yeah. live in object poverty and they don't yeah. commit one crime. Mm-hmm. And the problem with us is we go on the easy path because mm. government says it's poverty, so we all mm. jump on that bandwagon because let me tell you why government says it's poverty. Because government does not want to change the way societies run. Mm. So they want to do the easy option, which is let's build some new houses and let's put them inside there. Let's do this. Because if you look at what government do and they're very good at doing, is they take the easy option and they paint the picture that this is the problem. Mm -hmm. If deprivation was the problem, we would have more gang members. At the moment, we've got 60,000 gang members. Mm -hmm. So if that was true... Mm-hmm. We have 5 million people living in poverty in this country. Why are there 5 million gang members? Sure. So we have to answer, we have to look at the correlation as to why is it these families who are living in the same poverty-stricken, deprived estate are not committing crimes to the ones who are. So we have to be careful in following the government, because this is why I don't follow government, because I know when you start using the word deprivation and poverty, Everyone loves it because mm. it's a cop-out. No one don't want to look at their family. Because I'm going to tell you this now. Mm. There is no one going to tell me that if you have a dysfunctional family, that that isn't the first thing you should be fixing. Yeah, of course not. If you can't fix your family, how on earth are you going to fix poverty? Mm. Yeah. Because right now, that's what the problem is in the Asian community, in the black community, dysfunctional families, and in the poor white communities. That's mm. what's wrong. Nothing. To, listen, my brother grew up in the same house as me. Mm. We had no food. 
We had no, we had four of us sleeping in one bed. Please don't, no one don't need to tell me about poverty. We lived it in the 60s. Sure. We lived it proper. And my brother did not become a gang member, even though he grew up where gun bullets were going on every day. He had to duck to get into the shower. He had to duck to walk out on the streets in Spanish town. So I know what it's like about violence. So I'm saying to everyone who's listening, if you think poverty is it, then why have we only got 60,000 gang members? Right. Why isn't there Why isn't there 5 million? Because there's 5 million living in poverty right now in the UK who are impoverished, mm. who are living below the breadline in this country, yet they're not committing crimes. So the question then becomes, why? Why are they not committing crimes? So what I'm saying is this. I'm not saying bad schooling, um, poverty, and all of that don't contribute. Of course it contributes. But the biggest factor is dysfunctional families. And the reason why we don't want to address it, and I'll tell you why, because Asians, poor whites, and blacks do not want to look at themselves. Because by addressing your family, you're going to look at yourself. And we don't want to do that, because it might mean you might need to address your uncle, who's not looking after his kids, or you might need to address your brother, who's not looking after his kids. So it, that's why we don't address that problem. But I do, because I'm not afraid. Sheldon, I can I, I I can I can certainly echo from my experience working in schools from 1995. Um, time and time again, the, the children that you see with the behaviour difficulties uh, are children that have come from dysfunctional families. It is a clear link. Clear link. Right. Okay, uh, Sheldon. I think you, you raised some fascinating points. Uh, I want to thank you today. I've run out of time. Run out of time. Wow. Yeah, we've got, we've got a break time. It's, it's been a fascinating half an hour. The computer takes us in the break and we can't stop it, Sheldon. <laughs> yeah. Right. Th right. Uh, thank you very much. And perhaps another opportunity we'll talk uh, about this topic again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, you we'll speak again, yeah? Have a, good, have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Right, listeners, we're going to take a short break uh, and we're going to be right back. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Brexit. Yes, Brexit. Stay tuned. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast making available our popular programmes from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. Uh, this is Friday Night Live. Uh, my name is Zafar Iqbal, and with me is Abu Bakr Cooper. Uh, and we're going to talk about Brexit. Uh, before the break, we were talking about... Um, this knife is, crime. This, there's going to be so much to talk about with this. Yeah, Brexit. There's going to be a lot to talk about. But there was a lot to talk about knife crime. I think Sheldon was fascinated with his views, to be honest. I think he kind of hit it on the head. The root cause is absolutely the breakdown in family, etc., etc., etc. It's uh, a massive thing. I was just talking to my daughter. I was just talking to my daughter about it just in the last couple of days, and, and she said, "Oh, Dad, knife crimes everywhere. You know, like what, like, like what's the big deal?" And I and I said to her, "I said, look." I said, Alia, I said, you have no idea. I said, when I was a kid, I said, no one, and I literally mean no one, got stabbed. You never, ever, ever heard of stabbings on the news. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. You know, it's, it's, but, uh, yeah, but, but the th thing is, I think what that's gets... How, that's, that, that's, that, that's how much things have changed between, you know, like the late 70s, early 80s compared to now. Yeah, and I think what's heart-wrenching is the fact that young people don't feel safe. Mm. And that that is kind of that gets me emotional, to be honest. You know, it's uh, how can this day and age, technology, policing, etc. I guess family that there is there is 
an argument there, but people feeling unsafe kind of gets me as a yeah. somebody who's a father of, of and children. It, 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 it is scary. I mean, I've I've come across pupils I've taught and that I've spoken to, uh, and um, I've I've had actu- I've actually had I've actually had boys talk to me about you know knife crime, and I've actually had a, had a boy talk to me and said said Oh yeah, so I've I've got knifed, and talking about all matter of fact and saying I had so much time off. And uh, I didn't ask him to, and, and, and he lifted up uh, um, his, oh, just a, a, his calf behind, you know, near, near, near his leg, and 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 he, and he, and he uh, you know, I thought it was going to be something little, and uh, showed me a scar, you know, mm. just on near, near his calf. It's shocking. shocking, shocking, shocking indeed. Yeah. Right, we're going to move on to the next topic of discussion. We're going to talk about Brexit. Uh, we have on the line. Uh, I think we've had Dr. Stephen Barber again. He's a regular. He's a principal lecturer and director of MBA at University of Bedfordshire. Uh, welcome, uh, Stephen. Uh, and we also have Professor Catherine Bernard, Professor of European Union Law at University of Cambridge. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Good evening to you. Good evening. Good, e- good evening, both of you. Um, Right. Okay. So I, I think, well, from the sounds of it, and from what what have been described, or what has been described, um, you, I think, between you two, you can, uh, I guess, enlighten us in terms of what's been happening in Brexit, because there's been <laughs> there's been a lot of things happening, and you read the newspapers and you think, what is going on? So, how Kath- have you got? Uh, well, we got about twenty <laughs> minutes or so. Yeah, so, Catherine. So perhaps perhaps the latest. What what's what's the latest position? Uh, uh, and then uh, we were going to sort of take it from there. So the, the, the main thing that's happened today is that the UK sent a formal note to the EU to say we would like to request a further extension, and this extension will take us to the 30th of June. Now, this is a bit of a problem because um, the EU has already made it clear that the 30th of June isn't a, an option. Hmm. and they rather expect uh, us to request a year, and that's the reason they haven't asked for a year, because she knows that that would be absolutely lethal for um, the Brexiters and her party. So she's asked Hmm. for something that the EU's already said they won't give. Hmm. But she must be expecting that the EU will say, you need longer, because there are already plans that are underfoot for holding European Parliament elections. Hmm. And we wouldn't need to hold European Parliament elections, which take place at the end of May, if we were going to leave in June. Mm. So but but ha- hasn't the EU already said uh, they've given us two dates, next week, the 12th, and May the 20th or 22nd? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's complicated matters still further. So May, April the 12th is the date when we cra- are due to leave the EU without a deal, mm-hmm. unless we ask for an extension, and we've just asked for an extension. Okay. But the fact is that the extension is for us to ask, but it's not um, unilateral. We need to have agreement from the EU 27. Right. Okay. And the EU27 are not speaking with one voice at the moment. But if you recall, Donald Tusk, who's the president of the European Council, has indicated that a year might be a more acceptable figure, with right. a view that we can have some sort of agreement as to what um, we might want, and with a view to trying to get the withdrawal agreement through. Right. Okay. So, so what's significant about the 30th of June, then, and what's insignificant, I guess, about the 22nd of May? <laughs> right. So, what the EU said was, if Theresa May had managed to get a withdrawal agreement through, mm. Mm. Um, be before the, the elections. Withdrawal agreement, then she, she would have to the 22nd of May. 
But the trouble is she hasn't managed to get a withdrawal agreement through so far. Remember, we've had meaningful votes, one, two and three. Yeah. Um, she may well still try another one um, uh, very shortly, um, but that may not come to anything either. So I think the 22nd of May has probably been ruled out as a date because we haven't delivered by the 12th of April a commitment to get the withdrawal agreement through. Mm. Mm. Dr. Stephen, uh, welcome to Inspire FM. Uh, Hi there. Uh, just, uh, I mean, in terms of the options uh, that are on the table, uh, there was a vote, I think, this week, uh, which sort of said that no deal was no deal. But it is, well, is there, still there, on... there was a piece of a piece of uh, legislation sponsored by Yvette Cooper, yeah. uh, Labour backbencher, uh, which was passed by the Commons and has, has gone on to the the Lords, uh, which will compel government to seek an extension, which actually it's already doing. Uh, the piece of legislation is uh, non-specific about the the length of that right. uh, extension that that would be uh, that would be required, but it does uh, potentially give the comeback on parliamentarians to to specify that. Um, so yes, that we throw that into it uh, as well. I mean, I think the the, the politics of it essentially are that uh, Theresa May is in a very difficult position in mm. terms of requesting a long extension. I think everyone realises she needs one, mm. uh, but uh, the, uh, the hardline Brexit is, but, but more than that, actually, in her own parliamentary party, very angry that she has opened this up um, to Jeremy Corbyn uh, <laughs> and negotiating with, with uh, the opposition, um, uh, really are sensing blood if she's also seeking uh, a longer extension. Well, uh, from so what she's I, politically in, from in, what, in a difficult position. From what I can see, Stephen, it's not actually going in, going anywhere. I mean, Sakir Starmer is sorry. He's he's now been quoted uh, saying coming out that the government's quote was disappointing and and it would not consider any changes quote to the actual wording of the polit polit political declaration. He's actually said compromise requires change. I mean, they're not they're not moving a jot on this i mean the reality is and this is the reality let's face it um brexit was won just by a two percent swing and the the, the brexiteers are not recognizing that the crisis we're in is because the brexiteers of the tory party are trying to force through as hard a brexit as possible when reality is the the swing in the country for brexit was only two percent and therefore surely the We've got to be pragmatic and look for a compromise and have a soft Brexit if we're going to have Brexit. I mean, it's, well, that's just simple pragmatism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've got a number of issues there. I mean, just on the, on the last one, I think it's been, I think, fairly obvious, probably for two and a half years, that there is something like a consensus in Parliament somewhere for some sort of soft Brexit. Uh, the problem with that for Theresa May in the current state of uh, the Conservative Party um, with a minority government uh, is that it, it runs the risk of, of really tearing her party apart. But, that, um, but that's the reality of this has been going on for 30 years, hasn't it? This, let's, let's face facts. This is, this is the reality of it. This is why Brexit is not happening. It's because half of the Tory party wants to remain. Half of it wants to be totally out. And it's literally ripping the party about, apart. And it's not about the Conservative uni Unionist Party for the country. It's about Theresa May holding the Conservative Party together. And it's not well, she's working. she's trying to do both things, isn't she? Yes, she's, and it's not working, is it? To, and 
everything's falling uh, no, apart. It's clearly not working. You know, um, I, I, don't, okay. I don't think there's anyone in the uh, in the world. Who's I mean, what, uh, what we're up to working. about six point one million, I think it is now, uh, yeah. voting to to <laughs> to say let's have a referendum. Give us a referendum. I mean, for how many well, people do they need to sign the petition to realise the people want a referendum on this? Hmm. Well, this is interesting, actually, in, in terms of Theresa May's position, because uh, she she must have, in, in that seven or eight-hour cabinet meeting that, that then led to the opening up, up of discussions with the opposition, uh, it must have crossed people's minds that one of the uh, the the, uh, the red lines for Labour, not necessarily Corbyn, but, but in, in keeping Labour together, would be to seek a, a referendum, a confirmation referendum is now being called, on whatever deal is is put together uh so theresa may could be in the position of agreeing uh, a referendum to a deal that wasn't her own deal it's a, a deal that, that's there's a compromise with labor when she could have presumably put her own deal to a referendum that she ostensibly uh, believes in so i i i've been rather confused at that position uh, that she's taken mm. um i i think there is growing pressure within labor uh, there's clearly growing, growing pressure within Labour to insist on there being uh, a referendum linked to any uh, deal, but it, it also looks it, it looks unlikely uh, that they'll well, come to any serious agreement. Can I just just bring with Professor uh, Catherine uh, on again? Um, so, so in, in terms of the the relationship, I, I guess, or the discussions that are happening with with Labour at the moment, Labour appears to be sort of more. Um, I guess more leaning towards a customs union. Uh, what what does that bring to the table, the customs union, as opposed to what what the government was uh, proposing? Well, I think we've got to be clear. Um, what the government has proposed so far is the divorce. Mm -hmm. The customs union is about the future relationship, right. and what the customs union is is it has two elements. It means uh, there's an internal element, which means that there's no tariffs on goods going from one country to another, right. and there's an external element, which means that there's a single tariff, a single customs duty, a tax mm. on goods coming into the customs union. Why does it matter? Well, at the internal rules, no tax is really important because, of course, uh, on agricultural products, the tariffs currently would be about 40 to 50 percent. So mm -hmm. it would make British agriculture uncompetitive. Um, externally, if it's set by the EU, it means we can't negotiate trade deals. And that's why the customs union is proving so controversial for the Conservative Party. Right. OK. But but does, it does solve the Northern Ireland borders uh Questions. No, well, it doesn't actually. Only part solves the Northern Ireland border question because it's not just the customs duties, the tariffs, but it's also the regulatory checks. Right. Okay. So for freedom of movement. Uh, Professor, well, what would forgive me? I'm 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 on a train. It's just about to leave. There's a good chance I might go through a tunnel and get cut off. Okay. <laughs> no problem. If it, if it happens, <laughs> then it happens. Professor, what what can you just outline for us, Professor? What would guarantee the safety, as it were, of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland that would guarantee well, no compromise of the border. What would we be looking at? You'd need a customs union and regulatory alignment on goods, so single market for goods. Right, OK. So I, I think... Which is, why, less, which is more or less what's in the backstop. Right, so the, I, we thought but the why, back, back, backstop was is simply a case of... Um, but could, it, it, it but can, we, could, can, can we not have Brexit and agree to that? Why is that so bad? 
Well, Brexit, if you have, go for the backstop, um, that would be in the withdrawal agreement, and that is about leaving the EU. That is about, that's the Article 50 deal, that's about leaving the European Union. But, but what I mean is, 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 is why couldn't we have that covering the whole of the UK? Oh, you, it, it, that could, that's one possibility for what a future relationship might look like. But for the Brexiteurs, it's not acceptable because it would mean that we wouldn't be able to set our own rules for goods. So, 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 well, I'm not putting this into their words, but to my mind, the Brexit, the extreme Brexiteers are saying that the safety of our country is worth less than getting the deal they want. Could I say that? Well, they, they, a lot of them don't want a deal at all. They want us to leave without a deal. Mm. Okay, so, so mm. what's, what's so, I guess, uh, Dr. Stephen, what's so bad about no deal then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think we've discussed this in in the past, haven't we? I mean, it, it's it, it's the idea of, I mean, it's the idea of leaving a uh, an economic relationship, the biggest uh, economic uh, the single market in the world uh, that we've been a part of uh, through its development uh, for forty five years sure. uh, or more, um, and leaving to be the perhaps the only country in the world without a. Uh, a, a trade deal at all, um, one that uh, where there, there are no agreements or very few agreements on the, 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 the whether it's people who travel, people travelling, whether it's um, uh, the, the transport of goods. I mean, pretty much every aspect of uh, of life is affected by. Um, but there's there's obviously a lot of people. Um, the, the way you, you paint it is is that it, it's actually quite bad. That's from, from a common layman's pers- uh, perspective. I'm glad I got that across. Yeah, it's it's quite bad, right? Uh, but there's a lot of people pushing for it. So obviously they they must see that that bad isn't quite bad. I, I mean, and when you say there's a lot of people pushing for it, cl- clearly there's there's a uh, if you if you look at polling, um, uh, there, there's a a sentiment. Uh, when when asked of the, of the the population yes i would approve of of a of a no deal um but when when you're looking at um uh, whether it's you know economists uh business leaders uh, those who lead our public services those who lead uh the, the big institutions whether it's the bank of england or whatever it might be you you'll you'll struggle to find these people um, there's clearly a faction within the Conservative Party, the the, the, uh, the Rees Moggs, the, uh, the lastly Boris Johnsons, uh, who politically see this as uh, as, as their prize. And, and in a sense, it's it's because the actually it's the same thing for for the the left as well for the the the, the Lexiteers, if you like. That the, the EU in in a way gets in the way of that kind of fantasy world of, of a of a. On the right, um, you know, a, a sort of free free trade paradise. Mm. Um, on the left, uh, you, you know, an old style planned economy. Mm. Um, but but for the for the mainstream opinion uh, across government and um, and and pretty much all your institutions, you'll struggle to find that uh, case being made. Right. Okay. Mm. So so what you're saying is is 
perhaps pretty much there are there are people out there who, who do believe that that no exit no deal exit is is a good one uh, but not necessarily the majority of the people who think that this is going to cause lots of harm it's interesting though how none of them when, when you know when they presented it nobody thought about northern ireland and and i i think it's well to be fair blair and and during the the referendum campaign blair and major uh, went over and and, and uh, uh, made a joint warning, but it, it, it certainly was not part of the um, the, the, the mainstream of, of the debate. The, the debate no. was all about economic calamity on one side and re- essentially but the point, on but the, the other. point is, it is patently clear now that it's a problem, isn't it? You know, every, everyone involved in Northern Ireland. I mean, <laughs> the DUP, that they paid 10 billion, a billion per uh, MP to get on their side, will still not have any truck with this. I mean, what, I mean, what's, I mean, what more does they, it, it's a dangerous deal for the country, you know, and, you know, for for me, regardless of, of whether you vote would remain, leave, whether you whether you, th- you think um, Brexit is the best thing ever, uh, d- d- for the risk of uh, all of those problems coming back and causing problems, which having uh, e- having both of us in Europe, North and South, that that has helped massively to minimise it after the Good, Good Friday Agreement. None of that is worth losing. Yes, and for that reason, and and all the others we've discussed, is is essentially why you're seeing Parliament voting again and again against mm. things rather mm. than, than yeah. positively for and something. And I think, and the public are getting upset by this, and 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 I think that they're seeing intransigence in the MPs. But on this issue, this I think this is really important. We need to say this is that. We we do elect them as our representatives. They are, in essence, the MPs, the political experts. And, and I think the public do need to realise there is a reason why the MPs are so cautious about this, because so many of them can see and, and, and they worry, like I do, that this could happen. Mm. Yeah, but they're cautious as well, because while we have a representative democracy, in the case of the referendum... Uh, we we, uh, we 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 over we overstepped that. We we ha- we said that actually we're going to have a direct democracy, which is going to uh, um, override the, uh, the, the 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 principles really of parliamentary government. And so, ever since then, even though we've had a general election, uh, members of parliament have been very reluctant to do anything which is seen to be uh, against the will of the people. Mm. Even though, and I think this is where you're, what you're alluding to, um, the, maybe there's a mainstream opinion amongst uh, the electorate because essentially that's what they've been told again and again and again that, that leaving really is very easy. You know, it's that, that idea of doing a, a deal over a cup of coffee one afternoon, the easiest trade deal in history. Well, you know, it, it isn't. Right. Okay, Dr. Stephen Barber, I'm going to have to sort of cut it short there because we've run out of time. Uh, once again, I want to thank you for your contribution today. It's been highly valued, and I'm sure, our, list- I'm, I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot for, from our mm. discussion today. And you never thank know, you the much. next time we speak, we might have a result. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, listeners. Uh, just uh, a few seconds to say goodbye until next uh, next week, inshallah. We're cutting the program short a little bit today because we need to play the Maghrib Azan. Uh, next week, inshallah, uh, Hafiz Shaban is back and he's going to do his usual sort of uh, brilliant stuff. Uh, and uh, I might be there as well to comment on a few, a few subjects, a few topics. 
until then, inshallah, assalamu alaikum and uh, stay tuned. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org. You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at InspireFM Luton.